with a word of prayer tonight. Once again, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the scriptures that the Holy Spirit has preserved down through history. And we ask that our hearts would be illuminated to those scriptures tonight as we seek further uh, into the doctrine of the church and where the church is headed in history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we'll see how long my voice lasts tonight. Um, this will be the last class until after the New Year's, so this uh, we'll have a break here. Seems like we've had an awful lot of interruptions this fall, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, since tonight we're going to start into the first uh, scheme that has been... Um, promulgated in Christian circles to tie the church's end in with the end of history. I want to review before we go further because I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. There's a way to think about eschatology and there's certain basic principles that you want to um, kind of keep reviewing in your mind because if you don't, you're going to lose it. Because when you get into the detail, the verses, you're going to throw up your hands and say, this is, this is hopeless. So let's, let's keep it as simple as we can. Table number eight on page 114 of your notes gives you the outline of history through Israel. And that, that table is very important because it is mosaic. It is what Moses, from the very beginning hours of the nation's existence, it gives what God told Moses was an outline of Israel's history. And you'll see that the table, again, looking at it, the origin, looking at each of the rows, those are stages in Israel's history. So everything else, that all the details, all the innumerable verses, all the expansion of prophecies are just filling in details in this table. That's the way you want to think about it. The origin of the nation Israel, the discipline in exile, the idea that Israel would be disciplined as a nation, and one of the overt signs of the discipline happening would be that the, the um, nation would be exiled, meaning it would leave the what? it would leave the land. If you think back to the origin of Israel, it comes out of the Abrahamic covenant. Three promises in the Abrahamic covenant. You always want to remember these. Land, seed, and worldwide blessing. Over and over again, that's the structure of the, of the Old Testament. A land, there is a land, a piece of real estate that God has picked out, and that is the place he is going to put his temple. It's not North America, it's not South America, it's not Africa. It is at the crossroads of the Afro-Asian continent. That is where God set up his nation. That is where Jesus Christ was born. That is where Jesus Christ died. That is where Jesus Christ is going to come back again. And that is where the temple is going to be. So that piece of real estate is very, very important. So the origin of Israel is centered in a place. 
the origin of Israel means that it's a nation. It's a, a group of people that have a national structure, which means that it has a law code that encompasses all the subjects of a society. Then we have that that would be a discipline of going to exile, but that's not the end of the story. Then there would be a judgment of nations. Okay, let's let's relate the judgment of nations. We talked about the discipline in exile as they'd be booted out of the land temporarily. Okay? That's a sign of their discipline. They'll be disciplined as a nation. The third one, third row in table number eight, is there would be a judgment of the nations of the world. Now, in context, let's think about that, because that comes up in prophecy in much detail in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Why is there going to be a judgment of nations? Let's go back to Moses' time. What's the purpose of the judgment of nations? Well, what's the purpose of Israel's starting in history? Because the nations had paganized. They had fallen away from the revelation that they had received from Noah and Noah's wife and Noah's three sons. When all the people groups of the nations spread out from Mount Ararat, they carried with them part of the Bible. And the part of the Bible they carried with them was the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So every people group somewhere in their past has been exposed to the Word of God. Now, they might have forgotten it. It might be covered up with myth. But if you're a missionary and you're going into a primitive tribe, it's almost mandatory for your own mental attitude that you understand you're not bringing truth to these people that is a Western gospel, a white man's gospel, some recent thing that these people have never even touched before. Well, yes, they have, culturally speaking. Aren't they derivatives of Noah? Aren't they part of the family of Noah? Well, of course they are. Well, then their great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents or great-great-great-great-great-grandparents must have had to the truth. And so this becomes important for your own mental attitude in working through this that you go back as far as you can to the roots and relate the gospel to their own memory of that gospel, not to the white man. It's not a white man's imposition. So the judgment of nations is because they apostatized, you have Israel, and when Israel, in the second row on table eight, <coughs> the discipline and the exile, who were the agents for the discipline in exile? Think of it, in Israel. When Israel was booted out of the land, who were the human agencies that was God's hand to discipline his nation? Babylonians, the Assyrians, and so on, media birds. So if that's the case, then God uses human instruments to discipline his nation. The problem is, that those nations he's using are unbelieving nations who can draw the wrong conclusion and do. Namely, that their pagan gods are greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel, because obviously they're victorious over Israel. So they get arrogant. They always get arrogant. 
every one of Israel's enemies always winds up in their downfall of getting too arrogant. Hitler got arrogant. And what happened to the Third Reich? So every nation that comes up against Israel, finally, because of the Abrahamic covenant, he that curses you, what does he say? I will curse them. And that's a law of history. You can see it play out over and over and over again. So, the judgment of nations is going to happen in the future because in the future, the nations gang up on Israel. So the reason why you have a judgment of nations is because of their abuse of the nation Israel. Now notice something which we have not said so far on row number one of table eight, row number two of table eight, row number three in table eight. We haven't mentioned the church. The discipline and exile of Israel has nothing to do with the church. The judgment of the nations has nothing to do with the church. The ultimate, now that coming to the last part of, of Table 8, the ultimate enjoyment of blessings in the land. That's not the church either. That's Israel. And that's the final chapter of history. Table 8 gives you all of the outline of history, and the church is missing completely from that outline. So, you've got to start here, because this is where it starts in the Old Testament. Don't worry about the New Testament. New Testament will come. But understand from the viewpoint of Moses and how God ordained that history would be a pattern. And the reason why there has to be a coming kingdom centered with God's temple in the land is because that's the destiny of the human race. And each one of these ages is going to teach us something. All these dispensations and ages have a purpose, pedagogically. God administers history pedagogically. There's a lesson plan. Let's think about it for a minute. Before the fall, did man live in a perfect environment? Yes. But did man sin in a perfect environment? Yes. So that lesson teaches us and should politically immunize you and me against any politician or political program that says the problem with man is his environment. If the problem with man is his environment, what do you do about the pre-fall existence in Eden? Then we have a period from the fall of man all down through the antediluvian age to the flood. Was there a capital punishment in that period administered by government? No. Was there any such thing as civil government? No. So you hear it today said that capital punishment is a problem. It's causing a problem. What caused all the sin prior to the flood? Capital punishment wasn't even there. What was the rule? prior to the flood, the conscience of man. It's what man knew of God's rules and he, everybody did their own thing. And we saw where that got us. Then we come down to the civilization that we know today, centered from coming out from the sons of Noah, becoming all the people groups. Did they start out with the word of God? Yes. Did they start out with the great promise? Yes. Did they have a purpose for their life? Absolutely. So what was the problem? 
sin again. Man rebelled in a perfect environment. Man rebelled with his conscience only. Man rebelled with his conscience plus civil government. And then we come down to Israel. And now we have the detailed will of God for all of society. We have rules for public health. We have rules for loans. We have rules for work, how many hours a week you work. We have labor laws. We have dietary rules. We have worship rules. We have a grandiose scheme of worship with choirs and musicians. We have a welfare system in Israel, administered, by the way, by the priests. They were the doctors and the health care people of their time. We have a perfect society with perfect laws. And what happened? Man sinned. And it never worked. So when you hear the argument said that, well, what we need is, is, a, is a change in, in the political philosophy, Wait a minute. We've had all those answers in the past, and they don't work. Somewhere along the line, you would think that we would get the point that the problem is here in our relationship with God Almighty. And that is always the problem, and that is what history is exposing. Finally, when we get to this fourth row on table eight, and we have that final kingdom when Jesus returns to bring in that kingdom, once again, we have a perfect world government. Once again, we have a very benign environment, not totally sin-free, but a benign environment. We have economic prosperity. We have health on a level that the human race has not seen since before the flood. And what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? Satan is loosed for a while, and what does he do? begins a revolt again. So, you see what this does. History is one sequence of things after another that refute every excuse that man comes up with. So that when we get in eternity, somebody can't raise their hand at God and say, well, if you did it this way, it would have worked. And God is going to say, I did it that way. Sorry, pal. It's already been tried, and you guys screwed up with that. You tried, tried this, and you sinned. I tried it that way, and you sinned. We tried it this way, and you sinned. You see what history is showing? The depravity of man. And that is not a, a good news message for most people. And that's why people want to suppress the Bible and explain it away. That's why we have academic people. I always laugh at academic critics of the scriptures. First of all, usually they're quite biblically ignorant people who have not really read the Bible. Amazing to me that they can sit up there and make these pronouncements to naive college students and, and get away with it. They get away with it because college students don't any better either. But the point is that there's this tremendous illiterate attitude toward the scriptures. And if you could ever watch the politics on a college campus, here these guys are in front of their classes telling you the way society ought to be ordered. They can't even run a faculty meeting on a campus. I mean, if you really are intimate to the way most universities and college campuses are run, there is stealing going on, there is all kinds of absconding of funding, trying to rip funds out of one department for another person's department, trying to put people down, trying to get them fired, all kinds of stuff. This is by the people who are trying to tell us how to run society. 
So all you have to do, the cure for anything you hear on a college campus is attend a faculty meeting. Watch what happens. So anyway, the point I'm making is, is that the, the end run of all this is to expose man's sin and God's faithfulness. That's what it's all about. Man's sin and God's faithfulness. Now, this outline in Table 8 is expanded again and again on page 115. Again, these words. We haven't touched how they're used in the New Testament. But if you look at this set of vocabulary that were developed under the Old Testament, and vocabulary, when you get into the Bible, has got to be defined on the basis of usage. So what you do is when you see these words, you go back to see how they were used in the Old Testament. This is not too difficult. You don't have to know Hebrew and Greek to do this, folks. All you need is a thing called a concordance. And the terms I picked out on the top of that page, very important because they occur later on in the New Testament. Tribulation. Down in that paragraph 1 on page 115, you will see a reference. Deuteronomy 4, verse 30. Very important reference. That's where the, book, the word tribulation first occurs in an eschatological context. And that is where it obtains its flavor. Let me digress here for a moment on tribulation. We're going to get into it very shortly. And what I want you to do is think about the word as it is used for Israel. Israel's tribulation is to get her ready for the coming king. And that tribulation is revealed in the Old Testament to be a horrible time. A time of unprecedented sorrows. A horrible time in human history that would include human agencies, apostate governments, but also geophysical judgments, earthquakes, astronomical phenomena, all kinds of stuff, like the universe is coming apart here. The word tribulation, and remember this, this word is not used for normal suffering. Every once in a while, you get people who want to keep the church in the tribulation, and they say, well, those pre-tribulational people, they just want to let the church off. Church needs to suffer. It needs to be purified. Excuse me. The church has gone through purification century after century. What was the Colosseum all about? The tribulation... This tribulation is not that kind of suffering. That kind of suffering is to purify the church. This isn't to purify the church. This is to get Israel ready to receive her Messiah. And it is to judge the nations on the basis of their treatment of Israel. That's the purpose of this tribulation. So let's not confuse, just because it's the word tribulation, that that word somehow, if the church isn't part of it, why, gosh, that, that's a cop-out. No, it isn't. It isn't a cop-out. It's a cop-out only if this tribulation has something to do with the church. The day of Jehovah, as it's translated in the Bible, is the next term. That is an Old Testament word. 
and it's used for sometimes a, a period of time. It can be an instantaneous literal day. It has varied uses, but common to all those uses is that God does something stunning in deliverance or judgment. The time of Jacob's trouble. There's a term in the Old Testament. The time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble. And then the, the metaphor of birth pains. You'll see Jesus picks that one up. The idea of this birth pains that keep on increasing until the birth, the birth of the kingdom. Okay. Now we come on page 117 to the final milestones of Israel. In other words, what can we look forward to as specific things that must happen in history to culminate the career of the nation Israel? <coughs> well, we look backward. In order for Jesus to come and set up his kingdom, what has to be there first? Got to have a land with Israel in it. Jesus is going to come back and before he comes back, by the way, the Antichrist is going to desecrate a temple. So what does that tell you? Besides Israel being in the, in the land, what else has to be in the land? has to be a temple there. You can't desecrate a temple if there isn't any temple to desecrate. I mean, this is not profound stuff here. This is straightforward. So you have to have all these things in place for Israel to do its thing. Um, you're going to have the Antichrist come. He's going to make a treaty. He's going to break the treaty. And later, the Messiah is going to come. It's quite simple. And the Messiah, when he comes, is going to establish the long-awaited kingdom. And when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, is he or is he not an infallible leader? Absolutely, because he's resurrected. And he's perfect. And who is he going to bring as an administration? For his kingdom, an infallible administration, his body, who are also resurrected. See, once you're resurrected, it's a resurrection to damnation forever and ever, or it's a resurrection to blessing forever and ever. But there's no transgression, no conversions from that point on. Everything's fixed. So, this is a, a, a strange time. I had a person on the telephone the other day saying, What's this millennium business all about? I mean, you've got people like resurrected saints coexisting with mortal people, and yeah, I can't believe that. And uh, my response was, well, if you can't believe that, what do you do about the antediluvian period when you had angels coexisting with men? Well, I hadn't thought about that. Well, see, history is stranger than you'd like to think. We've had whole ages that were weird weird things going on. We don't know what it looked like before the flood, but somehow angels were here and administering things. They had an angelic police force that was a security guard around Eden. And they had swords to kill people with. So, I mean, what was that all about? That was weird. And, and the Bible doesn't fill in all the details. Sorry, but the Bible, maybe someday we'll see movies of what happened or something. But in the future it's going to be interesting in the kingdom because Jesus is going to rule the nations and it says with what? a rod of spaghetti? no a rod of iron what does that tell you about Jesus' authority in the time to come? 
he has the right to kill and to take life. There will be capital punishment in the millennial kingdom with all due apologies to some of the problem people that have problems with that. But that's, Jesus is going to administer that in the kingdom. For there will be people born in this kingdom who are not born again. And they will be the seed of Satan's revolt at the end. They will refuse to bow their knee to trust personally in Jesus. So they'll see him. They'll submit grudgingly to his external authority. But they won't submit in the internal heart. So once again, we've got a big mess. Okay, so much for Israel. Now we come to the church. Now, last year we, we said, when did the church begin? This is a critical, critical question. Don't answer this question right, you're going to flounder. When did the church begin? Was the church in the Old Testament? Well, the word church means assembly. You had an assembly in the Old Testament, yeah. But I'm talking about the church as we know it, the body of Christ. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I will what? My church. I will build my church. Is that a present tense or a future tense? It's future. I will build my church. So he wasn't building it then. He is going to build it. Now, in the New Testament, it's, the church is seen to be in union with Christ in his ascension. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So what does that suggest? The church can't exist until Christ gets up there to be in union with him. So if the church is defined as those who are in union with Christ, the ascension, ascended one, then it has to be sometime after the ascension that it began. And so we came down and we concluded, because of the baptism of the Spirit and other things, that the church began on the day of Pentecost, not before. So that means that we have to go to the scriptures that address the church, not Israel, the church, to see what God is talking about, the church and its future. So on page 118, I give certain themes that if you do this, you'll see that there are themes that you can pick up out of the New Testament text. One is, again, let's, let's turn there to Ephesians chapter 2, because Ephesians is a central New Testament epistle that talks about this thing called the church. And certain things are said about this church. And, of course, one of them that I'm talking about right now is in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, this is a stunning verse, if you ever thought about it. Um, and this, this will keep you going in your thinking process for hours and hours and hours, asking questions about, well, how does this happen? Just look at what verse 6 says about the church. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So there's a union between believers and the re resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus. So that's one thing. That is why our citizenship is said to be rooted where? On earth or in heaven? Our citizenship is in heaven. Why? 
because we're in union with the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's one thing, the union. Now, a little footnote on, on Ephesians chapter 2. If you go down to verse 11, you'll see that the Gentiles, in verse 12, combine with Jews. Now, Gentiles combine with Jews in the church. Can the church be Israel? Well, you've got a problem here. Israel in the Old Testament is defined to be Jewish only. Okay? Why? Because it's a racially defined entity. Furthermore, Israel becomes a nation. God gives social legislation to Israel. Do you find any legislation on money, loans, public health, latrines in the New Testament? I haven't found any yet. I had a person one time go through all the Old Testament rules, listed them all out, and then went through the New Testament, listed them all out. You know there's big gaps in the New Testament that are not filled in? There's no laws for society. Never given to the church. Now when do you suppose that is? Because the church is in the nation. God isn't giving the church legislation for social entities because the church isn't a, isn't a nation. If the church was a nation, we would have social legislation given to us in the New Testament. But there's a glaring gap. And so when people want to go back for social legislation, they have to get principles out of the Old Testament that worked with Israel. Why do you have to do that? Why didn't God do this for the church? Well, because the church is made up of people from every nation. Remember what it says in the book of Revelation? One day they shall come from every tongue and every nation on earth. That's the church. The church can't be identified with one nation. The church is a supra, S-U-P-R-A, a supra-national entity. It is above the nations. I don't know whether you've ever had this experience, but you need to have this experience sometime in your life. You've got to have the experience of meeting a Christian from another society and culture. You've got to have that experience. Because once you've had it, you, you have this person, they're racially different than you are, they're culturally different than you are, their background isn't anything like your background, and yet you can sit down with them and have fellowship over the Lord Jesus Christ. What a stunning experience that is. All of a sudden, there's something that clicks between you and that other person. You may not even speak the same language. You may have to have a translator sitting there between you two guys. But there's a, there's a heart unity here because the life of Christ in them speaks to the life of Christ in you. There's a spiritual camaraderie that happens. And it's a powerful thing. And once you've had that experience one or two times, all of a sudden it'll click with you that what a thing the body of Christ is. Now, I just gave you an illustration, what I call a horizontal spatial illustration, coming from culture A to culture B. Now, to do this experience, you've got to use your imagination. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's suppose we get in a time machine and we go back 300 years maybe to Europe, and um, 
in Europe, we uh, meet some, say, German Christians, Lutherans or Brethren, somebody like that. And we have a translator so we can talk to them. And what we would discover is the same camaraderie. This time across the centuries. Because we too share the body of Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. That's that mysterious unity. And that's what defines the church. Not a nation, but this bodiness. Okay, on page 118, I have a second theme that you'll identify in the New Testament. When it talks about maturity. In Ephesians, um, both in chapter 1 and chapter uh, 3, um, if you look at the prayer, particularly in chapter 3, verse 14, we've often heard sermons on these. This is what you can cheat here. You know what God's will is. And all you do is go back to the, the prayer here. It tells you what God's will is for praying for other believers. And so he says... Um, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you being rooted and grounded, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It may be filled up with the fullness of God. There's a maturing theme in the Bible. And if you'll notice carefully, the maturing trend in verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 centers on what? What is, the, what is the heart of that prayer? The growth is a growth in the knowledge of the Lord. And uh, somebody recently pointed this out to me that if you take all the warning passages in the New Testament, you know what the most frequent theme of the warning passages is in the New Testament? defection from true doctrine. Now, isn't that interesting? They're concerned with that more than they're concerned with any other thing. Not that they, there are other issues, but isn't it interesting that the most frequent warning is to depart from the truth? And the reason for that is, is that you cannot operate in the Christian life in a mental vacuum. If your perception and conceptions are screwed up, you can't cut the mustard when it comes to the Christian life. You've got to have content. The Christian life involves some mental activity. Don't, I'm not talking about in, being an intellectual here, but I'm talking about thinking tr what truth is all about. Very strong emphasis on this. Corporate growth, and we spent some time in the previous chapter, if you line up all of church history, what do you see? A progress in doctrine. First four centuries, what was the doctrinal progress concerning? The person of Jesus Christ and the Trinity. The next 400 years, what was that progress all about? Understanding what happened on the cross. Understanding atonement. Understanding how I become a Christian. Is it by works or by faith? And in the last two or three hundred years of church history, what's been the theme? What is the future? Eschatology third theme on page 118 is something that's not true in the Old Testament. Global evangelization. Now, you know, it's interesting, but until dispensationalism came about and the literal um, translation of the, of the Bible and interpretation, 
technicians were always second rate, low priority. It's only when you had literal interpretation with a dispensational clarity that you have the rise of modern missionary movement. There's a reason for that. Because global evangelization is one of the themes of the church's reason for existence. The church has got to get complete. How is the church going to get complete if the gospel never penetrates every people group? The, the body would be deformed, wouldn't it? If you didn't have evangelization of, say, that people group and that people group and that people group, but you had evangelization of those people, those people, and those people, then in eternity, the body of Christ would be made up of believers and no representatives of these people. And that's not what the picture is in the book of Revelation. What does it say? You have redeemed us out of every people's group. All languages have been evangelized. So there's a theme. Global evangelization is the theme of the church. Another theme, page 118 of the church, is suffering from the onslaught of Satan. Christ was hated, and so his body is going to be hated. If you hate the head, you're going to hate the body. And Satan is opposed to the Lord Jesus. But why can't he get to the Lord Jesus directly? Where is the Lord Jesus? Father's right hand. He's sitting where Satan wanted to be. Satan got, got faked out. See, this is characteristic of evil. Evil, and you, this is a kind of a guideline to pray when you get in certain kinds of situations in life where you have to pray these kind of prayers. Where you find yourself confronted with a strong evilness, um, we're confronted nationally with Al-Qaeda. It's a strong evil. So what's a good way of praying about this? Here's a, here's, a, here's a strategy to pray. Pray that evil oversteps itself and does something stupid. We have a number of policemen in the congregation. You know what they always tell me? We catch the stupid ones. Because they always make some stupid mistake. Remember the sniper? Everything was going cool for that guy until he blew it by making a telephone call because he had to brag to the police what a great guy he was and they ought to check him out in Birmingham or wherever it was in the South. Well, he did. That's how they find out who he was, idiot. We always catch the stupid one. Well, that's the way Satan is. He always does something stupid. He is a genius. I'm not calling him an idiot here in that sense. But he is so arrogant that his arrogance causes his brilliance to become stupid. Lord Jesus so hated, I mean, that Satan so hated the Lord Jesus that he wanted to kill him. The very act of trying to eliminate Jesus from this earth did what to Satan's kingdom? Pulled the rug out from under it, didn't it? And that's the way God works. You watch again and again in Scripture. It's as though there's a dynamic ebb and flow. And evil reaches out to grab an attack. And God steps back and then neatly countermoves. So that the downfall of evil is evil's own aggression. 
And so that happens with Satan. Satan overreaches. And he overreached. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is now in the Father's right hand. <clears throat> so now what <clears throat> can Satan do? What did Paul say, hear Jesus say in the Damascus Road? Paul was attacking the church. Jesus said to Paul in the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the Christians? Didn't say that, did he? On the Damascus Road he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, Jesus warned us that the God of this world hated me and he will hate you. The world will hate you. The reason the world hates you isn't because it's got a personal thing. It's because if we're Christians, we're identified to the powers around us as Christians. And we're going to take flack. We are going to be targets. So we don't walk around with a big bullseye, you know, painted to our chest like a bunch of idiots. If you know you're going to be shot at, you take some precautions. And that's why we have covering fire, and it's called prayer for one another. Because all of us, at one time or another, are in the sights of the principalities and powers. They may not have anything personal with you, but just because you wear the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus, they see that. You can't. You know, as we're sitting here wearing clothes, we can't see the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Now, where is it? I don't see it. can't detect it. They do. And so whether we are detecting it or not, they are. And that's why we become targets. So the church's theme is that it suffers because of its identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Satan always oversteps himself, even here. How many times have you read or heard testimonies by believers where they went through a struggling period? What do you often hear along with those testimonies besides the suffering? The results. And what are some of the results? Spiritual growth. Witnessing to other believers. Somebody becomes a Christian because they see that person suffering and they see, holy mackerel, how do they hack that? And they wonder, and it's an entree of the gospel. So, even here, when Satan attacks, he usually winds up causing spiritual growth. You ever hear the expression, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church? What does it mean? Because every time Satan has persecuted the church, makes the church grow like crazy. Something about the blood flowing into the ground or something. Whatever it is, it's horrible to go through and live through. But in a large, grand scheme of things, it seems to be what causes expansion of the church. So, suffering is the other theme in the church. Now, next page. Two more themes that are common to the church. The church is said to be not appointed unto wrath. And the word wrath, let's, let's look at Romans, um, or let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is a good verse for that. 
The word wrath here refers to the coming, the second coming. And it says, we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the word orge, or ye here, that Greek word is a word that is used of the judgments to fall upon the earth at the second return of Christ. Now back in table eight, what did we say was going to happen? Judgment on the nations, right? That's one of the purposes of tribulation. Judgment on nations. But what does it say here about the church? Who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why should there be wrath anyway against the body of Christ? That doesn't make sense, does it? The Father executing wrath on the Son. The church is identified with Christ. See, there's some radical differences here. And I want you to kind of sense this as we go through this. This is different than Israel. Um, Okay, so we, uh, you see for some verses, Romans 8, 1, there's Romans 2, there's Romans 1. There, there are many different verses, but 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 is a classic reference where this is, this is expressed. The church's immunity from the future wrath of God, because that wrath has another purpose. The suffering that is mentioned, and this is why I put this immunity right after suffering, See, the wrath of God to come isn't the suffering that's the previous paragraph. That fourth theme in the bottom, page 118, is suffering for growth. There's where the suffering for growth occurs. But Paul says the wrath... Christians down through the centuries. One of the problems that we'll go into when we get into this uh, after the holidays, we'll go into the various views in the tribulation. And it's amazing that the people who want to bring the church into the tribulation have to do something with the suffering. One guy I read said, well, the suffering in the tribulation really isn't that bad because they're going to use guillotines and they chop your head off and it's painless. And they wind up having to make the suffering of the tribulation like it's no different from the suffering of the rest of the church age. Wrong. That is a special time in history that is directed to prepare the world for the return of Christ. And it's going to be different there. It's a different kind of suffering for a different kind of purpose. So one must not confuse these two. Now, there is judgments upon the church. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus disciplines his church. Yes, and that's in there. The Lord Jesus is going to purify the church, no question about it. And he uh, maintains discipline on the church. And we could go through the different letters, but Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is like an inspection report. Jesus inspects these different churches. Then he writes up an inspection report. If you've been in the military, you know what an inspection report looks like. You know, you conform to this point, this point, this point, this point. Uh, you had a finding over here. And you had another finding over here. Another finding over here. And then you have so many days to correct those finds. Or there's some problems coming your way. 
So that's what the Lord Jesus has done in Revelation 2 and 3. It's an inspection report of his findings of these different congregations. And he's, he's going to take care of those congregations. It's a discipline upon the congregation. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2, for example, verse 21, or 20, he's dealing with this prophetess called Jezebel. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. See, false teaching, by the way. And I gave her time to repent, and she doesn't want to repent. So I'm going to cast her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So the church has purification. The church has judgments. But these are judgments between the Lord Jesus and these, these entities, these local entities. Okay. Then he has the, the, the promises that he gives the church. Now, finally, another theme on page 119 is not only is the church immune from the future orge of God, but the church is commanded to look for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. Now, we want to define the word imminency. If you look there on the notes, page 119, right after I mention the word imminency, I give you a definition. So watch the definition. It's not quite what some people think it is. The term imminency means that Christ could come for his church at any time. No prophesied event has to occur before it. A prophesied event might occur before it, but it doesn't have to occur. So it's not saying that, for example, um, let's say, uh, well, some people believe that in Ezekiel you'll have the, the armies of the north come down or something on Israel. Maybe that could happen before the church is raptured. But the point is that that's not the launching point for the tribulation. So that event would be a prophesied event that could happen before the church is raptured, could happen after the church is raptured. Point is, nothing has to happen before, between now and the church is raptured. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection is the theme there. And it says in verse 51, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery is something that is new revelation. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. This is new. You don't find this in the Old Testament. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we shall be changed. In other words, the idea of an instantaneous transform from your mortal body to your resurrection body is an utterly new thought. And that's, that's a possibility. And the idea of imminency is that that could happen at any moment. Once the church got established, 
the people who quibble about imminency will all tell you, well, you, you had to have, the world had to be evangelized before the rapture. Um, Peter had to die. Um, and, and they go through these things. But if you look at their explanations for these things, but the point is that the doctrine of imminency doesn't show up until the church's existence is clear. Now, remember what I said about the book of Acts? In the beginning of the book of Acts, even though church exists, is it clear that it's existing? No. Because what's going on throughout the first half of the book of Acts? Peter's preaching to Israel to accept the Messiah so they can have the kingdom again. So the church doesn't become clear until decades later. So a lot of these things really aren't a problem for imminency. But the idea, we'll get into that, but the idea here is that you have these themes. Now, all the themes that I've talked about tonight, going backwards, imminency, immunity, suffering, all these, you know, these themes, these are the counterweight to Table 8 for Israel. Do you see a difference? Where in all these themes do you see any kind of an exile mentioned? Where do you see any kind of land mentioned? Where do you see any kind of we're going to bring the kingdom on earth mentioned? See, these are themes that are particular and peculiar and aimed at the church. And the idea to come out of this is that the church and Israel are two distinct entities. Now some more things we want to finish because next time we meet after the holidays we want to get into the church and the tribulation which is on page 120. We start that. But I want to deal with the rapture a little bit more. First um, Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, some people will say, oh, the word rapture isn't in the, in the text. Well, it is in the Latin edition. But the Trinity isn't either, so I don't particularly impressed with that. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, often used at funerals. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. You see how practical Paul was? You hear people say, well, prophecy is too hard, and I don't want to bother with it, and Christians disagree with it, and so forth. Why did Paul bother with revealing it here? In the context, what was the problem? Practical, everyday problem with personal friends who had died. And you're going to have an eschatology, whether you think about it or not. You will have some form of eschatology up here. It may be chaotic. It may be unbiblical, but you'll have an eschatology. You operate with one every day. It's just that you don't, maybe we don't think through what the eschatology is. It's driving us every day. But we all have an eschatology. So Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. These are loved ones who have died. What about, uh, you know, Grandma uh, Alice or somebody who, who's a great believer, and I know she prayed for me, and that's why I'm a Christian today, because my grandmother prayed for me, or my grandfather, or I knew my father, and he died prematurely of a disease. That's the question they're asking. You know, we haven't had those kind of questions. Of course we do. So that's the question. I don't want you ignorant about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. 
And the idea here is he's talking about suffering, personal sorrow. See, I don't want you to I don't want you to grieve like a person who has an unbiblical eschatology. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now just look at that and think about it. Let's read it literally, verse 14. Let's read it again. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, when he comes, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So is there going to be a rejoining? If Jesus were to come tonight, what is it saying? He would bring with him those Christians who have died. You know, you can think in your own congregation, your own group. Somebody who's died in the last ten years. You're going to see him. That's what it says here. My Bible says God will bring them those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say by you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead shall rise first. <clears throat> now, verse 16, 15, and 14 are dealing with a picture of the resurrection body. So, let's diagram this. Here's the ground. Here's, here's some rotted body with a few molecules left. Okay? Jesus comes down from heaven. And he brings with them, with him, it says, those who have died. But their bodies are in the ground. Because when we die, we don't get resurrection bodies right away. So, along with the Lord Jesus, come these people who are born again, but who have died. They come with him, and at this point, they receive their resurrection bodies. Because what else does it say in verse 16? He will descend... And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So all of a sudden, there's an assembling of material transforming into bodies. And these spirits go, jump, jump, jump. And all of a sudden, they're walking around resurrected bodies. And you talk about something mind-blowing here. Try putting this in the physics class. What's going on? Because obviously, bodies who have died centuries ago don't exist. The molecules and the worms and everything else have taken them and digested them five times since the body was put down the ground. So those, you know, those molecules are all gone, but somehow God creates this resurrected body, and he does it quickly. This doesn't take a million and a half years to do this with some experiments along the way. This is something that happens instantly when Christ returns. Amazing thing. Then he says, he goes on, you know what was so neat with Paul in these texts? He comes out with this stuff that's so mind-blowing, he just casually walks on next verse, tell you some more stuff. And in verse 16, after he says, the dead in Christ shall rise first, verse 17 gives another detail. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, thus we shall always be with the Lord. You have to read verse 17 along with 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thess 4, and 
basically, here's a person now. This person has a body, so we'll draw him black. These people don't have bodies, so we'll draw them not filled in. So what happens is these people get their bodies. He says, that's going to happen first. So all of a sudden, they hit their resurrection bodies. And then we have mortal bodies. Maybe I should make our bodies sort of shaded like that. That's our body now. So we have our mortal bodies. What do we mean by mortal body, by the way? A body subject to death. And in a twinkling of an eye, it switches and becomes a resurrection body without going through the death process. So these people, they died. Their body, they shed their body. Their soul is in the presence of the Lord. Then they come back and they're reunified with their bodies. But the people who are alive at this fantastic instance in history don't go through death. There will be one generation, and only one, in the body of Christ who never die, but instantly go from this body to the next one. Call my insurance company. So at this point, everything changes. A radical thing, and that's what we call the rapture. So we've defined that key term, and when we get back after the holidays, we'll go on and tie in, as you can see on page 120, we're going to start talking about the church and the tribulation. We won't have a Q&A tonight because I don't think my voice will handle it. Save your questions. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have so overseen the maturing of the body of Christ down through the centuries. And as we come to the text, we're soberly reminded that we are targets while we are walking around the kingdom of darkness. Because though we may or may not realize it, we are being identified by the principalities and powers as those who are in union with your Son. We pray that you would keep us alert and not walk around as fools, as people half asleep, but alert to spiritual conflicts that can arise suddenly, without warning, because we are simply part of the body of Christ and in this great cosmic drama of good and evil. We thank you tonight, too, Father, for the great promises of the Word of God that the Lord Jesus is coming back. No matter how chaotic history may be, no matter how scary things can appear, we know that these promises are your word, you control all things, and this will come to pass. We thank you now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.